Welcome back to the Coffee with Kojo podcast, produced by the School of Communication and Journalism at South Dakota State University. I am Associate Professor Rocky Daly, and I coordinate the podcast with our student hosts and guests. In this episode, Kojo student Taylor Storbakken talks with school alum David J. Law. David was a well-known radio news director in Watertown for over 48 years and has been recognized as Broadcaster of the Year by the South Dakota Broadcasters Association, as well as being inducted into the South Dakota Rock and Roll Music Hall of Fame. Taylor spoke with David about his experiences and career. First off, I thought we'd just start out talking about your distinguished award that you got this Saturday. How did it feel to get that award? It was really nice. What an honor. I never would have dreamt in a long time that I would have been remembered by my old uh, school, but I sure did appreciate it. It was a, really a privilege and an honor to come down there and be back in the, in the uh, throes of good old SDSU again. It was sure a different time and era when I was there back in 19, well, actually in the late 60s through 1970 when I graduated. We had roughly, I think, around 3,000 plus students. Wow, so many uh, so many things have changed over the years, but boy, what a great time. Had a great time at the uh, at the luncheon. It was really an honor to receive that. During your time here at SDSU, what was one of your favorite memories? One of my favorite memories actually was working at KESDFM. We were just a little 10-watt radio station at that time on campus, and uh, we probably had a group of uh, guys numbering around 10 or so, and we operated this little 10 watt and mostly played classical music at that point in time. It carried a signal across the campus, but had just a great time, and it was so fun to see over the years as all of us graduated, went on into our careers. Some went to work for the Associated Press, others went into television, others uh, got totally out of the business. Some went into uh, uh, plumbing of all things, but I mean, you just never could predict. But back then, uh, we were in the basement of Soberg Hall, and uh, we had just a small space down there. But that's where we learned the uh, the first uh, the first bits and pieces of radio and editing and all those uh, all those things back then. Of course, editing back then was really editing. You literally were cutting reels and that sort of thing. So a lot of changes, but that was a, that was a great memory. A lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know that that's what you wanted to go into, or was it the student-run radio that kind of got you into that career field? I had a brother-in-law, and uh, he kind of steered me in that direction. He had a real interest in communications, and uh, that's kind of where I, I started off in geography, thought I was going to be a physical education coach and all that good stuff, and I didn't really, uh, that didn't light my fire, and then I got exposed to, like I said, that Little FM in Solberg Hall, and I, I just uh, fell in love with that. And so I got into the speech and communications program. And my one of my professors, Dr. Clarence Denton, back then, uh, he was he was a rock star on campus uh, in theater and communications. And so I really liked him, and that uh, kind of steered in that direction. And uh, that's how I ended up uh, ending up with a speech and communications degree, and fell in love with it right there on campus. So you start with geography. And then switch to speech and communications. How long were you in geography before you switched? About a year. I really enjoyed it. We had, uh, I'm trying to remember the teacher's name, Ed somebody, and I won't come the last name, but probably we'll think of it later. But uh, it, well, I'm glad I did it because it was really, uh, all the courses I you know, took on campus were so helpful in my future life in radio. You know, all the poli-sci courses we took and, and uh, all the social courses that we took from religion and uh, on and on and on. And uh, speech through Dr. Denton and some of the others were just uh, 
critical pieces of the pie. And that's why I really wish more journalists could spend four years in an institution and get themselves well-rounded because you're not learning to be a journalist as much as you are learning to be a part of the world and understand the world a little better and, and uh, you know, grow some empathy for different disciplines and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, I didn't stay into it too long, but I sure don't regret uh, having taken some geography courses. So I read that when you were in high school, you were in a garage band. Do you want to tell me about that? <laughs> yeah, rock and roll was a big, of course, the Beatles came through in about 64, and I would have been about a sophomore in high school then. And every town had their own little garage band. We're no different. And so we formed up, and we uh, we put together this four-guy four group, and we called ourselves the Shabans. Don't ask me how we come up with that name, a boy band, but we did. And... Uh, we, we were really quite successful. We got to play a lot of gigs and uh, at, towards the end of our high school years and in the start of college, we uh, even got to play some places like Horatio's, which was a big hot spot in Brookings at that point in time and carried on. But yeah, well, we sure had a great time. We, uh, we won some battles of the bands here and there. And so I had a love of rock and roll from the early years of, of the 60s all the way up through until... I was honored in 2012 with a Lifetime Achievement Award because when I went into radio, uh, did a lot of, uh, I wasn't a DJ, I was always pretty much in news, but had real close ties to the music and all the bands and all that kind of thing that rolled around the music. And so uh, that uh, that was fun too. In fact, we ended up playing with a band down at uh, SDSU and that was a lot of fun. Uh, me and one of the guys from our original group and some others from the Brookings area, and we called ourselves uh, Harvey Wallbangers Big Time Band, and we were the house band for what was then the bar downtown, like where the old theater, pretty close to the old theater is, where the gym place is now, and uh, it was called The Last Step, and boy, literally, it was. Uh, that was the uh, the beer haunt and the music place to be, and we got to be the house band there, so we played there for two, three years, and uh, always stayed active in, in, in the music side of things, so that was a fun part of it, too. What part did you play in the band, and how did you, like, get started with it? Did you just, with a group of friends, think, oh, let's just start off a band, or how did that start? Well, I started, I, I was kind of the start of our first high school band. I uh, talked my parents into buying me a $49 Montgomery Ward guitar, electric guitar, that uh, I practiced about five, six hours. I brutalized my parents, having most of the, uh, <laughs> most of the nights for the better part of a year, learning how to play, and then... Some of my friends uh, got interested through me, and and then uh, eventually we talked to another friend doing the drums and the bass and whatnot, and before we knew it, we had a full-fledged four-man band, and uh, you just keep, uh, you, there was such a love of rock and roll back then. There were so many big groups, you know, the British invasion was going on, so music was a big part of every small town's life, and uh, that was the entertainment. I mean, you would go to all these different halls on the weekends, and all these bands would be there playing, uh, some big bands, some small ones, but uh, always a fun thing, and uh, we really enjoyed it. So it wasn't hard to learn the music. We would come up to Watertown. There was a, what was called the disc shop. We would buy 45s, the latest songs that would come out, whether it be the Beatles or whomever, and we would take that home. We didn't have sheet music, so we would just play the song over and over and over and over again, these new songs on a, on a portable some sort of record player, probably an old RCA, whatever, 45, and learned the songs that way until we built an inventory and catalog, and then we would take it out, and we were 
we booked dances and boy, a lot of groups did just that. That's how we learned the music. And uh, it's, it, was di it was a different way to do music back then. Now, of course, you just go online and anything, everything you want is there. If you want to learn how to play the guitar, you can learn there. Or the music's all there, but uh, it was a different time then. You literally had to wait till the next big hit came out on a record, take it home and then try to memorize all the parts. So it was pretty tricky, but a lot of fun too, you know, made for fun practices. Do you still play your guitar now? No, I gave it up. My son Dave, who's down there in Brookings, uh, he still plays, and he's just uh, done very well. He's an excellent guitar player, but uh, I gave it up when I got married, and the kids start coming along, and I ended up playing uh, in Brookings at the last step, uh, probably in about, oh, I suppose around 71 or 2, kind of slowed down quite a bit. Played a few gigs after that, but uh, by about 1980, I pretty much gave it up. Still love the music, though. <laughs> so with your band and then also in your career with radio, you've probably seen mm -hmm. a lot of change over time. What has been like the biggest change in radio? When, we, when I started in, uh, when I graduated in 1970, I went to work for uh, the radio station in Watertown, KSDR. They were a 1,000-watt daytimer. That meant they only broadcast from sign-up to sign-down, and then they went off the air. And... Uh, when we started, uh, that was a thousand watt station and we played rock and roll music and we just had added the news department. That was a whole brand new thing back then. There weren't too many radio stations that had news people per se and uh, especially university trained uh, news people. Some came from Brown Institute. Some were just maybe hired, you know, maybe had some newspaper experience or whatever. So the first thing uh, that we ran into was technology. We didn't have a lot of it at that point in time. We were using Ampex reel-to-reel -reel recorders. And, and uh, eventually, in about uh, 1971, maybe, two, cassette recorders came out. They were big, clumsy-looking things. But my gosh, what a quantum leap that was. And then we went to carts. Carts are kind of like Super 8, you know, kind of cartridges. And... Uh, so it just kind of rolled along, but we initially started with reel-to-reels. You had to cut. If you did any interviews, you, of course, use a suction cup attached to your phone, and that would go into the reel-to-reel. Uh, -reel. And you weren't very mobile. You certainly couldn't go out with a phone and record somebody on the street. That was very difficult. But like I said, when the cassettes came along, then that gave some mobility. And it just gradually progressed over the years. So it was really, um, technology-wise, it was pretty... Pretty, uh, pretty basic back in the early 70s. About by 80, things really started to change around. We started moving into the computer age a little bit. Of course, we were all using typewriters all through the 70s. And then we got our first K-Pro. K-Pro was one of the first computers, and that came into our newsroom when I went to KWAT. And that was an amazing quantum leap as well. And, of course, then we just kept moving and moving to where we are now. Biggest changes that I saw in journalism as far as radio is concerned is that uh, <clears throat> we went from a time frame uh, back in the 70s where we had uh, the Fairness Doctrine in place. So as a news guy, if I would go out and somebody would say something nasty or whatever uh, about somebody, about something, I had the obligation to go out and make sure I got a response from the other side. It was the fairness doctrine that was in play and that went all the way up and through till about the mid eighties. I think about 87, <clears throat> the FCC changed that. And so we've seen what's happened since then 
with our dialogue in the media. It's just, uh, it's gone a whole, whole way beyond where it was then. We even had to go out in the early 70s and uh, do a needs list. And what that was, we would literally have to go into the community and round up maybe, I think it was like 10 people a year, or every six months or whatever it was, and ask them what they felt was the base, uh, the most neediest thing that most neediest thing that needed to be done in the community. And we had to write that down and come back. And then we had to address that in stories. And then we had to prove that and uh, then uh, document it. And every quarter we had to submit a, uh, <clears throat> that needs list to the FCC. That's kept in your file. And then they come by and inspect it. They got to make sure that you're doing just that. They did change that eventually too. Stations still have to do it, but they don't have to go out and do community. They can come up with their own needs list with their own staff and that sort of thing. But uh, boy, what a big change that was. And then of course, the other big change was about in 1996. And that's when the Telecommunications Act <clears throat> was passed. And that allowed, it allowed markets to be more than, uh, it allowed businesses to own more than one station in a market. It used to be that you couldn't own more than one. Well, that changed the whole dynamics. Now you have uh, a situation where somebody can come into a market and own who knows how many. In the case of where I worked in Watertown, we owned up to six, and that group is still going as a six-group station. But that also applied to television, newspapers. That When that happened, that changed that whole dynamic. So now you have these huge, huge uh, corporate media giants all over the country, and uh, it's, it's grown to that. So that's probably one of the biggest changes I've seen in radio, those two, the Fairness Doctrine and the Telecommunications Act, because boy, that really changed the landscape out there big time. <clears throat> and I'm sure a lot of young people, I don't know how many, if you've been studying anything about that, but uh, that really changed the way radio stations and television stations operate, still does today. Do you think that from your perspective, once that act came out, that it made radio stations stronger to have more than one station as part of one corporation? or did it take away from local stations? I don't know, the verdict might be out a little bit. I've worked both, we're just, the last group I worked with here in Watertown was one station and I loved it. All the staff loved it because you're all going in one direction. When you put multiple stations under one roof, it's really hard to keep all that unity and, and everybody going in the same direction because you're, you've got so many different radio stations, so many different formats, so many different so many different directions that these stations are going that it's all it's hard to stay on the same path together financially business wise it makes sense because you can you consolidate your uh, assets from news to sales to everything so that part works nice and uh, you know I, I can't fault that but it's got its downside the downside is just that is that it's hard to pay loyalty to so many as it compared to having just one. And we <clears throat> discovered that in the last 10 years when we were just doing a one station operation. It just kept everybody in a tighter fold, kept them together better. But uh, here again, money-wise, financially-wise, I'm sure that uh, it made sense in a lot of markets to do that. But boy, some of these large corporate media operations anymore, they're so huge. You just, if you're small, you're almost lost in the mist, you know what I mean? Another thing we're also talking about in class right now is how with the rise of streaming services such as like Spotify or Pandora, 
taking away from radio a little bit. Do you want to tell me if you saw that effect at all? It's interesting. I, I go with the 10 year rule and uh, that is every 10 years, the, uh, person who was 10 years old, a person who was just born is now 10, 10 is now 20. And that, as you roll along, I mean, the times change. And so, for instance, when we, when we started the uh, last radio station up here in Watertown, KXLG, we began with a format in classic rock and roll. Well, by the time 10 years rolled down here, uh, two, three years ago, classic rock and roll from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that's, that's a goner, you know? So, our formats all had to change. Our, our our programming had to change to match it, and to try to attract young people. And you have to blend radio with social, and that's how the, the, that it's really being done by most stations today. In other words, if you're a news guy, you're not just doing a tape recording and coming back and it's going on the radio. It's going on Twitter. It's going on Facebook. It's going to hit every any streaming device you can, so you keep attracting that audience. But you still use radio as the device that will bring the people in. So if you have a product that people will tune in, because people still listen to radio because it's so easy and it, you can get to any demographic with it, <clears throat> any age group, because it's in your car, it's anywhere you want it. So if, if there's good product coming out, people will listen to it. And we found that out with our group. Now I'm retired now, but, uh, but I'm telling you that uh, you got to blend it all together now to make it work. I mean, you're, you're not just a radio station or a television station. You'll see it even like with Kello and some of those. I mean, they're driving people into their websites to try to uh, keep that younger demographic, you young folks coming, and hopefully you'll, uh, you'll listen to some radio along the way too, you know. I heard about the Give a Buck program. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I did morning talk uh, for about 30 years. We had a program up here called What's Up, and... Uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It was aside from my news duties, but uh, it was a very, very popular show. It was at a time when we didn't have streaming. It was basically, we aired it from about the 1980s up until I left in about 20, 2007 or somewhere in there. And it's still going today. But anyway, the show uh, is literally that. What's up? You know, anything going on in the community? Call in, share, whatever. It could be recipes. It could be, you know, uh, just anything politics uh, we covered the gamut and it was the go-to show for many many years and um, you know it was at a time when there weren't other areas to go to get media other than newspaper or maybe television but in a local market like ours it reached out and let people vent it let gave people information it kind of was the uh, the billboard of the of this whole area up here in this region but uh, through the years we through the 1980s, we went hit a period in the 70s here in this country where we hit that inflationary period. So again, the interest rates are doing kind of like what they're doing now. And we got to a point in the 80s where it just skyrocketed and, and farmers, it just broke the bank and they were going belly up left and right and out of business because of double digit interest rates. And so one day on the show, we had a call come in. So why don't we raise some money and send the whole legislature to Washington, D.C. I mean, what kind of a crazy idea is that? And so, uh, yeah, whatever, I thought. <laughs> well, it wouldn't die, so that call led to just multiple, multiple calls. And pretty soon, we had, a, we had it going, so uh, we uh, started what was called the Give a Buck campaign. So it invited everybody to give $1, not more, not less, just $8, and send it to our radio station, and we'll put it in the bank, and 
we'll see what happens. Well, it just caught fire, not just uh, here in South Dakota, but all over the country. We had uh, all the national papers and whatnot and whatnot uh, getting, get, getting a hold of us and wanting to know, what are you doing out there in South Dakota? What's going on out there anyway? Well, of course, the farmers were, you know, they were trying to find ways from keeping their farms from being foreclosed on. And so we were just trying to get our legislature stirred up enough so that they could, uh, you know, at least get some noise made in Washington to get things changed out there. Well, we uh, we finally um, got to a point where went to Pierre and the legislature, uh, Bill Jankla was the governor then, He uh, they relented and uh, they we raised, I don't know how much of the money we raised, I haven't got it in front of me here, but enough so that eventually we chartered a jet plane and we loaded up the entire <laughs> South Dakota legislature and uh, us in the media, there were some of us in the media, myself included, and we uh, flew off to DC and the governor included. And we spent uh, two days there, we had hearings, Tip O'Neill, was the speaker then, and uh, uh, President Reagan wasn't in town that weekend, but uh, Vice President Bush was. We met with him, and uh, they hammered out some things that changed the dynamics of the uh, the farm programs. They've had mediation came in. You might have heard of that. I don't know, maybe not, but that's where they tried to sit down with farmers and work out plans where they could keep their farms and tried to work on some interest rate issues, and so... It was a real highlight of my working career. Uh, who would have thought something like that would have, you know, gone so ballistic in a state like ours, but it did. Never been done since or ever that an entire legislature went to Washington, D.C. What other news events did you focus on? Well, that was a big, that was a big one. Of course, there was a lot of them. When I, I was just no more than out of college when the, uh, when we had the American Indian Movement uprisings out on the reservation, we were on the other end of the state, but uh, nonetheless, we were all in coverage of it. That was a big memory of mine. Of course, uh, had an opportunity to interview some of the some of the Native American folks that were involved in that, and then of course the big Rapid City flood. Here again, that was on the other side of the state, but our National Guard was out there at that point in time, and they were involved in that and uh, had a chance to cover that. And of course, all the all the nasty floods and things we had over the uh, years, and we had some nastiness uh, along those lines up here. Got to cover that. Had an opportunity to do so many things. It was just a wonderful career. I guess I do have one more question because some of the listeners might be current college students. So, what would be some advice that you have to students that are wanting to pursue a career, whether it's broadcasting, journalism, radio, in that field? What would your advice be to them? I know it's hard right now. I know it's hard to look at journalism without uh, wondering, gee, what kind of future is there out for me? The public's been just so down on journalism in the last few years, uh, you know, calling us fake news and all that kind of things. But you always got to remember it. It's true. And I learned this much that uh, we're the fourth pillar of this whole thing. The fourth, you know, it's, it's the legislature, the judicial, the, uh, and the executive. And then comes the press. And boy, no press, no go. I mean, you just Jefferson had it right back then. He says, if we live in a society without a press, you know, we live in a non-disciplined society and an uneducated society that uh, will go to the wolves in a hurry. And so I hope and pray that journalism will be alive and well. I know it's taking so many different forms now. It's just unbelievable. It's hard to know where to get your media. There's just so much of it out there. It was such an easy time I lived in. You had radio, you had the Associated Press, United Press International, maybe a few other things. 
and uh, television and newspaper, and that was it. Well, now today it's just uh, it's it's everything everywhere, and and it's 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 a whole different ballgame out there. But I just hope and pray that we can still keep young people interested in going into this because it really is one of the most important things out there. And <clears throat> without uh, without a good press out there, I don't know how we can have a good government. So we are the fourth pillar. Don't forget that. Our next podcast will post on November 25th. This podcast is a property of the School of Communication and Journalism at South Dakota State University, which reserves all rights to its use. Music by Cody M. Johnson and Tyler Addison James is licensed through AMP Music.